my wife always gets mad at me when I express a sentiment like uh, how glad I am that our kids are getting older because she always says, don't talk like that. They're going to be you know, big and gone before you know it. But one of the things that I love about my kids getting older are the conversations that we find ourselves in, the conversations about life, the conversations about faith, about whatever. My kids, in getting older, are getting more insightful, like I was saying the other week, and more thoughtful, and they're asking better questions than they want to understand at a deeper level. And I love it, except when I have absolutely no idea how to answer my kids' questions. We were driving home uh, from a Sunday service a couple months ago, and just listening to the radio and whatever, there was nothing really going on. All of a sudden, one of my girls says to me from the back, she says, Dad, she said, uh, God knows the future, right? And I said, well, that's, yeah, that's what the scriptures teach. She said, then I don't understand something. And I said, what's that? She said, why would God do something that he knows that he will regret later on? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, this morning we learned about Noah and the flood and how God sent the flood. And then it says after the flood that he regretted the fact that he did. He promised never to do it again. Why would God do something that he knew in advance that he was only going to regret later? At which point I said, hey, was that a deer? Did you see that girl? <laughs> it's just one of those, like, how do you, I mean, we talked about it for a little bit, but it was just one of those moments where Somebody that you don't expect throws out a question, I would consider myself qualified to answer Bible questions and put me in a corner that I just had no idea what to do with. And that is precisely what Jesus does to the religious leaders in the text that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 22. In this last week of our Life, Death, and Taxes series, where every single week of this series, this whole series has kind of been a one ongoing public debate between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel who are trying to back Jesus into a corner. And in effect, they're trying to discredit Jesus and his whole public life. They're trying to disenfranchise his followers. They're trying to make Jesus say something that he's going to regret or polarize himself, alienate himself from people. They're trying to maybe, you know, cross your fingers. I can't cross this finger. Cross your fingers, maybe they can get Jesus to commit treason and have him arrested. Um, but they're just trying to get Jesus. They're trying to undermine his public ministry. So they're asking him political questions about paying taxes to Caesar and theological questions about the afterlife and religious questions about which commandments matter the most. And as we arrive at the end of this public debate that Jesus is having with different groups of religious leaders, the questions seem to be dying down, and as the questions die down, Jesus takes it as his cue that it's his turn to ask a question. It says in Matthew 22, verse 41, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, so still a part of this same event, the same encounter, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, this isn't really a random question from Jesus. This is Jesus getting to the heart of the matter. The, the religious leaders in Israel have been asking Jesus all sorts of uh, auxiliary questions, questions you know, that are interesting or whatever, but they're not really at the heart of the matter. 
But their, their core struggle with Jesus is that Jesus throughout his entire public life has been either implying or outright stating that he is the Messiah, the Savior that God has sent into the world. And the people around Jesus continue to confess that they think that Jesus is the Messiah. And the religious leaders in Israel feel that Jesus is far underqualified to be the Messiah. And they would like, this is why they want to discredit him, they'd like to discredit this notion that he's the Messiah. And so Jesus' question that he poses them, he says, listen, your concerns about the Messiah and who the Messiah is, let me ask you this question about the Messiah. Let's talk Messiah. He says, whose son is the Messiah? Now this is Bible 101 for these religious leaders because it's clear all the way through the Jewish scriptures what the answer to that question is. At the end of verse 42, they say, the son of David. The, the standard Jewish belief, at least among most of the people, was that God was going to send a king into the world to, to lead Israel to victory, to set them free from Roman oppression. And that that king was going to be a part of the lineage of King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is where the idea of the son of David comes from. It says, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name, at both a temple and a community of worshipers. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says to King David, the greatest king Israel ever had, he says, when you're dead and gone one of your sons I will raise up and I will put on the throne and he will become the king over a, a universal global kingdom that will last for all of eternity it'll be a place that's filled the scriptures tells with justice and joy and peace where people will experience wholeness and abundance and prosperity and the messiah the the rabbis came to call this figure, this son of David, the Messiah. The Messiah will be one of David's sons. Now they looked at their history of their kings and so on. They said, well, that hasn't happened yet. So the son of David must still be coming. But that's how they would think about Messiah. Jesus says, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, the son of David. And Jesus gets a little smirk on his face. And he says to them, well, that's an interesting answer. Verse 43, how is it then, Jesus says, if that's true, then answer this. How is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, you know, speaking the words of God, calls the Messiah Lord or Master? I'll use the word Master so this verse doesn't get confusing. For David says in one of his writings, the Lord God said to my Master, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls Messiah master, how can Messiah be David's son? You see what Jesus is getting at. He says, listen, if somebody is going to refer to another person as master, it's the inferior person who refers to the superior person as master. A father would never refer to their son as master. A son made to the father, but a father... Never to the Son. 
So Jesus says, so this is interesting, because he's quoting from the Jewish scriptures, a writing from David. He says, so David writes this poem in which he calls the Messiah master, which means he can't really be David's son, can he? So back to the original question, whose son is he? Jesus never answers the riddle for them, but the answer he implies to them is obvious. The Messiah is not really or primarily the son of David. The Messiah is ultimately the son of God, of someone greater than David. And as you read this passage that Jesus is quoting, Psalm 110, and we're going to look at a couple of verses from it this morning. As you read Psalm 110, it's clear in Psalm 110 that this figure being referred to is virtually on equal status with God. Essentially what Jesus says to the Pharisees is, you guys have had this objection, you've had this issue with the fact that people keep referring to me as the son of David because you're concerned that I don't qualify to be Messiah. He says, your problem is you don't even understand what you're talking about when you talk about Messiah because the Messiah is not only going to be a human king in the lineage of David. The Messiah is going to be a divine king in some way, begotten by God. This, and, and this is what I want to draw out of this text, this is the remarkable thing that the scriptures teach about Jesus. That Jesus, in claiming to be Messiah, the king that God has sent into the world to be the Savior, what Jesus is claiming, what the Christian faith confesses is that Jesus is both 100% fully human and 100% fully God. Which is something that none of us will ever be able to wrap our minds around. Something that frankly makes most of us uncomfortable at some level. In fact, probably most people who affiliate with Christianity or who surround Christianity are more comfortable with one or the other of those two options, that Jesus is either a human being or he's divine, but not comfortable with both. Right? There are some people who are very comfortable with the idea that Jesus is a human being. Outside of the annual Time magazine issue that asks, you know, at Easter, was Jesus a real person? Historians are pretty well agreed that Jesus was a real person. And frankly, uh, most people would confess that Jesus of Nazareth measured against all of history was a fairly remarkable person. That he was a spiritual leader, spiritual teacher with more influence than the Buddha or Muhammad. That he was a moral teacher on par or exceeding the Dalai Lama. That he was a, a wisdom teacher who had deeper wisdom than Confucius, that he was a loving teacher who cared about the poor and the marginalized like St. Francis or Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa, that Jesus was all of these people and more wrapped into one human package. He was an incredibly remarkable human being. In fact, if you want to read a book about this, John Ortberg wrote a book called Who Is This Man? It's just about a, what a remarkable influence the person of Jesus of Nazareth has had on human history. 
but people who are comfortable confessing, maybe folks who grew up outside the church or who are on the more skeptical end of faith or, or the more scientifically minded, are more comfortable confessing that Jesus is human than they are that Jesus is divine. But this is exactly what the scriptures say about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of another one of the, of the life stories of Jesus, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That when John refers to the Word, he's referring to Jesus of Nazareth. That's why he says the Word became flesh, became a human being, and lived among us in the person of Jesus. John is writing to both Greeks and Jews, and both Greeks and Jews would have heard that phrase, the Word, differently. A Greek listener would have heard that through the lens of Greek philosophy, the Logos. In Greek philosophy, that's the Greek word for it, in Greek philosophy, the Logos is the divine rational principle that pervades all of reality, that is the source of everything that is, that is what generates form and order, and meaning, and purpose in reality. And the goal of life is to align your life with the divine logos that is in everything, including you. It's what makes you who you are. A Jew hearing that phrase would have heard it through the lens of Jewish theology. The Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke, let there be light, and light burst into the darkness. The word of God is this creative, redemptive force that God speaks out, that brings order out of the chaos, that brings light into the darkness, that breathes life into the barrenness. It is the self-communication of God. It is where God reveals who he is, the exact nature of his being. So listen to what John is saying about Jesus. He was saying, Jesus, he says, in the beginning, say it this way, was this rational, divine rationality that pervaded all of creation that brought order and form and meaning and purpose and beauty and light and life into all things. And it was the divine communication, the self-revelation of who God is, the exact representation of his being and this divine presence one day, as one translation says, moved into the neighborhood and lived among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is what the Bible confesses about who Jesus is. Now, there are some people who actually find it easier to think about Jesus as divine than they do about Jesus as human. They may be people who grew up in the church and who feel like the uh, divinity of Jesus is what needs to be defended. And so that's how we get used to thinking about Jesus. And those people are often very uncomfortable thinking about the humanity of Jesus. I'll illustrate this, because you can always tell when somebody has struggles thinking about Jesus as an honest-to-goodness human being because of the anger or the offense that they take when people like me talk about Jesus in that way. Uh, I know I've told this story before. I'll tell it again just to illustrate what I mean. Um, years ago when I was in university, my lab partner Mike and I were programming computers together and talking about life and faith and 
And in that conversation, my lab partner, Mike, said to me, you know, he says, Mike, I've read the Bible. I've read the New Testament. I've read all about Jesus. He says, you know what the Bible never says about Jesus? It never says that Jesus smiled. Never did Jesus smile. I don't know why somebody would want to follow a person who never smiled. And I'll tell you verbatim how I answered Mike. Remember, I was 19 years old at the time, so you'll forgive my crassness, but I'm going to tell you exactly what I said to illustrate my point. I said to Mike, I said, I too have read the Bible, including the New Testament. I've read all about Jesus. I said, do you know what else the Bible never says that Jesus ever did? The Bible never says that Jesus ever took a dump. But, but I bet he did that several times a day too. And Mike laughed, and I laughed, and we got back to programming computers. I told that story in a sermon a number of years ago. The next day, I started getting emails from people who said, you shouldn't talk that way about Jesus. It's disrespectful. They weren't concerned about the language so much, though maybe there are less crass ways to share this idea with my lab partner. They were concerned that talking about using the washroom when it comes to Jesus, is disrespectful. I remember hearing a radio preacher once, incensed, furious, because he had just heard about a Christian book that had come out about Jesus, and one of the chapters in the book was called Jesus as a Phallic Male. And this author was furious that somebody would dare to talk about Jesus as a sexual being. Jesus was a sexual being. Um, if you're uncomfortable with the humanity of Jesus, you are pushing away something that is essential to his ability to rescue any of us. There was a bishop a couple hundred years after Jesus lived named Gregory of Nanziansus. And Gregory once said, he was actually said a number of times, what was not assumed is not redeemed. What Gregory means is, whatever Jesus does not absorb of our humanity into himself, whatever is not, whatever part of our humanity we don't share with Jesus, that's a part of our humanity he can't save. That's what Gregory's saying. Jesus has to be fully human in order to save our full humanity. Uh, another bishop by the name of Athanasius said, Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. Hebrews says it like this, the reason Jesus had to be made like, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way. Whatever experiences you've had as a part of your humanity, Jesus, I suppose gendered realities accepted, Jesus has had exactly the same experiences in his humanity. He became like us in every way. Just think about what this says about God. That God, the, re, the divine redemptive uh, origin and source of everything that is, what brings order and life and beauty and light into the world, God himself, became exactly like us in our humanity so that he could rescue our humanity so we could become like him. This is the mind-blowing truth of Christianity. 
And exactly the point I think that Jesus is trying to make with the religious leaders. Because when he quotes Psalm 110, what he's doing is he's referring to a passage in the Jewish scriptures that illustrate precisely the two things that Messiah has come into the world to do. The first is that Jesus, as the God who became fully human, has come into our reality in order to be our king and to defeat the enemies of God in the world. So it says in Psalm 110 verse 2, it says, The Lord God will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, your, your rule, your dominion, your kingdom from Jerusalem saying rule in the midst of your enemies. The whole psalm practically is about how when Messiah comes, God will fight through Messiah and the community of people who volunteered to surround and fight with Messiah, God is going to fight against his enemies and drive them back, starting in Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth, and he's going to drive back the forces of darkness and reclaim the world for the light. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. And that's what Jesus is saying, in part, to the Pharisees. That's why I've come. As the king that God has sent into the world to sit on the throne over all of creation and in time to bring defeat to all of the enemies of God. The enemies of God, by the way, are not people. The enemies of God are sin, the power of sin, and the power of death, and the pain that goes with death. Jesus says, I've come into the world as God become a human being in order to rule over all of creation and with the community of people that surrounds me to fight against the power of sin in the world. To defeat whatever power it is that's operational in our world that makes us individually and societally and communally make choices that are self-destructive or destructive to God's reality. To live in anger, to live in envy, to live in lust, to live in laziness, to live in greed and gluttony and pride. Jesus says, I've come to defeat the power of those things in the world. He says, I've come to defeat the power of death, of pain. To defeat the forces that make some people live in the painful realities that God never intended people to experience. Not that Jesus came so that we could experience a pain-free life. No, Jesus came to be the king over pain, to make pain submit to God's will, to make pain serve God's purposes. So that by the power of Jesus, pain accomplishes the will of God in the world. That's what it means for Jesus to be king and to destroy God's enemies in the world. When Jesus is king, Virtue wins out over vice. People start living with increasing amounts of wisdom and justice and self-control and moderation and strength and courage and faith and hope and love. When Jesus is allowed to be king, wholeness wins out over brokenness. Abundance wins out over scarcity. Despair or hope wins out over despair. Healing wins out over pain. When Jesus is allowed to be king, the world is filled increasingly with peace. Where people experience peace with God in their spirit and peace with themselves in their soul and peace with each other in love and peace with the world in solidarity. When Jesus is allowed to be king, 
The world increasingly looks the way you would expect it to look when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, would you make the world look a little bit more like heaven today? So here's the question. In what way do you need to experience Jesus as your king today? What healing do you need to experience? In in your in the face of the diagnosis, mental or physical, in the face of the past abuses you've experienced, what restoration do you need to experience today? Over the brokenness of your own self-identity. What um, deconstruction do you need to experience of the shame that you live with every day that tells you that you're unworthy and unlovable? In what ways do you need Jesus to defeat the guilt that resides in your soul, whereby you can't forgive yourself for stuff that God has forgiven you a long time ago? In what ways do you need to experience Jesus' healing and relational reconciliation? Bridging the divide, healing the rifts, joining people together, reigniting the spark of love. In what ways do you need to experience Jesus bringing justice into the injustice of the world? How do you need to experience Jesus as king? In what ways do you need to experience Jesus as king over the sin in you, over the anger, the hatred, the intolerance, the violence, and the vengeance that you want to wreak in thought and word and deed to other people, either to their face or behind their back? In what way do you need to experience the victory of Jesus over your envy that tears other people down because you're envious of what they have that you don't in your ungrateful dissatisfaction of what God has given you. In what ways do you need to experience Jesus' victory over uh, your laziness, your apathy, and in your indifference, in your relationship with God, and in your relationship with each other, and in your relationship with the world, all the ways that you just don't care? In what ways do you need to experience the victory of Jesus over your lust? That disordered love that takes instead of giving and demands instead of serving. In what ways do you need to experience the victory of Jesus over your greed? That insatiable desire that wants more and more. In what ways do you need to experience the victory of Jesus over your gluttony? That unbridled consumption that doesn't know when to stop, whether it's with food or sex or money or Whatever the case may be, relationships. Where do you need to experience the victory of Jesus over your pride? Where it's you first and you only, your desires, your wants, your urges, your needs ahead of everybody else because you're just interested in looking after number one. Where do you need to experience the victory of Jesus over the darkness that you live with? Because that's why he came. But that's not the only reason he came. He didn't just come to be king. Psalm 110 tells us that he came to be your priest. It says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus shows up in the world as the God, man, Messiah, the son of David, son of God, to be your priest. You know what a priest does? A priest represents people in the presence of God and represents God in the presence of people. That's what a priest does. The priest mediates 
between God and people, which is why Jesus had to be both God and man. As man, Jesus stands in the presence of God and represents all of humanity to God. The Bible says two times that Jesus spends eternity as a human being in the presence of God, praying for the rest of us. As God, Jesus is in comes into our presence by the Holy Spirit and becomes a part of everything that we experience in life. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The priest... Jesus, the God-man who came to rescue us as Messiah, is our priest who is, stands before God praying for us in the midst of our weakness and our temptation. Where do you need to experience the presence of Jesus in the midst of your weakness and your temptation? Where are you about to give up mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Where do you feel like you can no longer toe the line? Where do you feel like you can no longer take one more step? Where does it feel like God is absent for you in the midst of your weakness? Because Jesus is the presence of God in the midst of that circumstance. And because Jesus is a human being, he knows, God knows exactly how you feel. And is with you in the midst of what you're going through. Where do you need to experience the presence of Jesus in the midst of your temptation? Where you just don't feel like you can win the battle anymore. Because Jesus is a human being. God as a human. He is with you in the midst of that temptation. And knows exactly what it feels like to have the pressure put on you to cave in. And to engage in self-destructive behavior. Relationally destructive. Spiritually destructive. Creationally destructive behavior. He knows exactly how it feels. And though he never sinned. He knows. He understands completely why somebody could cave under the pressure. Wherever you feel at your weakest, wherever you are being tempted at the enemy's strongest, Jesus is with you in the midst of that. God with you in the midst of your weakness and temptation. But Jesus as priest is the invitation of God for you to enter his presence and not timidly, not wondering whether God is disappointed with you, not wondering whether God wants to see you or hear from you, not wondering whether God is interested in what's going on in your life, as it says in the scriptures, approaching the throne of grace with confidence so that you can find mercy and grace in your time of need. What does mercy look like to you right now in the midst of what you're going through? What does grace mean to you? What help do you need wherever you're living right now? Because the Bible doesn't promise that God will give you exactly what you asked for. The Bible promises that because of Jesus, you can march into the throne room of God boldly and with confidence 
And you will receive from God the mercy and compassion and the grace and the help that you need to make it through whatever it is that you're going through right now because Jesus, in the presence of God, is representing you, praying on your behalf, talking to God at this moment about the very thing you're struggling with right now. This is what the scriptures say about who Jesus is. This is what the scriptures say about what it means for Jesus to be Messiah, the son of David and the son of God, the divine human come into the world to sit on the throne, to rule over creation, to defeat the enemies of God, drive back the darkness in the name of the light, to be the priest that stands in the presence of God, representing humanity to God as he prays for us to God and representing the presence of God right in the midst of the weakness and brokenness of our humanity. This is what it means. It's often said, That it's not what you know, but who you know that makes all the difference. Nothing could be more fundamentally true about the Christian faith than that answer. This whole series has been about debates on political issues and theological issues and religious issues. This whole series, the religious leaders in Israel have been trying to trap Jesus based on what he knows. What Jesus says to them, what Jesus says to us is this. It's not what you know, it's who you know that matters. And if you know Jesus, then you know everything you need. Let's pray. Jesus, I never want my faith in my life and I never want the faith and life of this church, this community to be about anything other than you. What a remarkable, unthinkable thing that God came for us as a human being to be our king, to be our priest, to rescue us from everything that is threatening to unravel our life and our relationship with you. God, you know where each person in our community is at this morning. Would you meet them right in the midst of where they are? Would you show yourself to be powerful and merciful in the midst of every situation in this room? Would you show us, God, as we head into this Easter season, why and how we can trust you with everything we have? We thank you and praise you and we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.